Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 80. Have you wanted to create a Python application that goes further than a command line interface? You'd like it to have a friendly interface, but don't want to make it a GUI, graphical user interface, or a web application. Maybe a TUI, text user interface, would be a perfect fit for the project. This week on the show, we have Will McGugan to talk about his projects, Textual and Rich. Rich is a Python library for writing rich text to the terminal with color and style. It's a great tool if you want to display advanced content such as tables, markdown, and syntax-highlighted code. We talk about how Will started on the project and how it's developed over the years. We also talk about Will's new project, Textual, a TUI, using much of Rich at its core. He shares how the project is coming along and what are challenges in developing this type of application. We discuss how a TUI has more in common with CSS and web development than command line or graphical interfaces. We also have a quick announcement at the top of the show from CPython developer in residence, Wukas Langa, about next week's release of Python 3.10. This podcast episode is brought to you by Datastax Astra DB, built on Apache Cassandra, now made easy in the cloud. Get 40 gigabytes of storage free every month at astra.dev slash python. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. So I have a special announcement from an upcoming guest uh, about the release of Python 3.10, and I'll let you take it from there, Wukash. Hi, uh, my name is Lukas Lanka. I'm the release manager of Python 3.9 and 3.8. Those are ancient versions by now. So uh, what I would like you to invite you to is the release party of Python 3.10, which is going to be uh, happening on October 4th and led by Pablo Galindo Salgado, who is Python 3.10's release manager. There's going to be me, him, and a bunch of other guests on Twitch. Uh, you will be able to comment and you know celebrate it with us. And and as well, just see how a release is actually happening in real time. So again, you're very welcome to attend this with us. Uh, stay tuned for the actual announcement with links. I don't have one yet. Uh, it's still upcoming where, from where I'm standing. But see you on October 4th. Cool. So they could maybe check out like your, your Twitter uh, feed yeah, or, or Pablo's feed and, and get the actual Twitch link at that point. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. I'll make sure to include all that in this week's show notes and uh we'll talk to you soon on an upcoming episode all right see you then okay so i just received the links from pablo's twitter and i'll include those in the show notes so check them out there now on to the interview with will hey will welcome to the show hi thanks to be here we were talking just before we got started uh, how i had been mentioning your projects a lot in my episodes with david amos and we had talked about rich being used in a lot of these uh, sort of REPL replacement tools. And then we saw the article about the rich dashboards thing that was like around February of this year. Yep. And then 
with all these interesting developments with Textual. And so I was very excited to get you on to talk about those things. And first off, I don't know if you want to just kind of maybe give us a background on Rich as a project and, and what it is. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So um, Rich is a, a Python library for color uh, style and formatting to terminal. So there's um, numerous uh, objects that you can write to the terminal to produce, well, rich. <laughs> I use that word a lot, rich formatting, such <laughs> as table, tables, uh, panels, things like like Markdown. Quite a large library, but it does all these things, and it's all quite integrated together. Yeah, I really like the... Uh, I was looking through some of the documentation and some of the built-in methods and different tools that you have there, like you said, like the tables and just sort of formatting things. What are some examples of libraries that are using Rich right now or projects that you know of that are using Rich? There's, there's quite a few. Um, recently, I found out that uh, HTTPX, oh, okay. um, that's a, a Python library, which is kind of like um, next generation requests. They've got a command line application and they're using uh, Rich there. So if you request an HTTP endpoint, it'll, it'll show that in sy- with syntax highlighting. Nice. For, for HTML and JSON and such. Give you a, a, a little bit of a step above like the basics of pretty print and things like that. Yeah. Well, this isn't pretty print, printing per se. This is um, syntax highlighting of, of uh, the response. So I'll show you the header um, with, with uh, various color and style to make it a bit more clear or easier to read. And the, the HTML will be highlighted so you'll have the, uh, the tags uh, colorized. Uh, it makes it easier to scan uh, in the terminal when you're kind of like testing API endpoints. Yeah, that makes sense. They kind of just be able to see at a glance what's happening and what's coming in. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. W- what got you interested in creating this project? So it goes back quite far, actually. I was working on a, another project of mine, a web development framework called Moya. And in that, I needed a way of writing to the terminal and I wanted to write content, which th- there wasn't libraries out there to do that. You know, I wanted to format things and start bold and and italic and stuff. And there was a few libraries to do it, but it wouldn't handle things like like text wrapping. You know, you, you write out a sentence and when it gets to the end, it'll just fold over and you'll get half a word cropped at either end. Um, so I started writing my own uh, routines to do that kind of stuff. And it, it got bigger and bigger. <laughs> and yeah, as it does, always does. And it became quite sophisticated. But it was never intended to be used um, outside of that library. But I do think that it had uh, some good ideas there, you know, some some things that should probably be, you know, offered in a sort of independent library. And years afterwards, um, every time I need to write to Terminal, I'd think, I wish that existed. You know, I wish that library existed that I've got in the back of my head. Yeah. And after after a few years, I think it was um, you know more than more than four years I've been thinking about this library, and and it still didn't really exist. Uh, there was lots of libraries that wrote various things to the terminal. Those libraries that did color, those libraries that did style, those libraries which did tables, several libraries which did tables and and syntax highlighting and all sorts of things, and they were pretty good. You know, there was no I had no major issues with these libraries. They were well written libraries but nothing which integrated that all together. So I started working on this idea that had been in my head for, for four years, put it together. Uh, the first thing I did was 
console markup. Uh, this is my idea of having a string and being able to start tags, much like HTML, but using uh, square brackets. So I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, BB code. It was, it was like BB code. So you have a tag which says bold on and then some text and bold off, etc. that kind of thing. Um, so I implemented that and I found that quite useful. And then I started adding on all the other ideas that I've been thinking about for years. And it, it grew, it grew and grew from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen it is kind of built into uh, these sort of uh, like different REPL replacements. I, I think maybe because they can kind of build on top of the the syntax highlighting that you're doing. Yeah. How how's that work? Is it is it parsing individual words or bits of code and identifying them and sort of grouping them? Or how does that work? So there's there's two types of uh, syntax highlighting that goes on. There's pigments based highlighting. That's a, another library which um, does syntax highlighting, and that you give it the string and you tell it the format, and then it's got a, a parser built in that applies that tokenizes it and gives it colors. And Rich takes that and that information and then renders it. But there's also another syntax highlighting going on, which is something I've created, which um, uses regular expressions. It works quite well for wrapper strings. The thing about um, the output from wrapper, it's not a formal syntax. Um, it's, it looks like code, but, but it isn't really code. If you wrapper a dictionary, it'll look like a dictionary when it comes out, but you can add custom wrappers. So it's not a a formal language which you can come up with a a grammar for. So for that, I use regular expressions, which seems to work quite well. You know, I can have a regular expression for strings, which picks out strings, and I can highlight those those green. And anything which looks like a tag, I can highlight that as a tag. And 99% of the time, um, that syntax highlighting works uh, quite well. So... Moya, you're using that on like your personal site, right? That's right. Yeah, my personal site is built on that. Um, Moya has a um, when I think about it, a touch of sadness because uh, no one ended up using it, and um, I worked on that for for four years. It's a, a crazy system. I, I I think it was a revolutionary, but no one ended up using it. Um, it uses XML throughout. So my my blog software, for instance, is essentially written in XML. Oh wow. I think yeah. There's a lot of people that have uh maybe mixed experiences with XML. Yeah. And I think that they might be shied away from it. Like I I personally worked in worked at a bank in mortgages and a lot of the vendor, you know, like the external uh software vendors wanted things uh sent and received in XML. Yeah, and so I, I think I might have had a, a, an allergic reaction if I would yeah. have heard you saying <laughs> that it uses XML, which is not nice to say. But I, I think that do you think that would be something that affected the uptake of it? Oh, uh, definitely. You, you're not alone. A lot of people don't like XML, and I don't think it's necessarily the fault of XML itself. It's it's the fault of the uh, applications of it. Uh, which seem to be very verbose. Yeah, um, you end up writing quite a lot of uh, convoluted XML, which seems like um, just making the, the task in hand harder. Yeah, the nesting was never 
easy to parse in, in, in this case, uh, what, what I was working with. And, and again, I was converting from SQL, which has its own, <laughs> its own arcane kind of structural stuff that you need to be comfortable with hmm. before you would, you know, kind of come in and out. So I, I could, I could kind of see as a, as a system, I could maybe see how like it would be easy to convert back and forth between that and HTML. Yeah, it doesn't, it, well, it actually, um, it doesn't use the XML for the output. I think, uh, gosh, it's been years since I did this, but I think there are um, text templates, but it's actually the the logic that's in XML. Okay. And it's not too verbose. I have I work quite hard in kind of compressing it into things which are kind of short and expressive. And I, I did this because I noticed that doing web development solve the, the same problems over and over again. Yeah. They're not exactly the same problems. They're not like cut and paste type problems. You write a lot of views and you're essentially thinking to yourself, well, I've written this dozens of times. So I thought, what if I could have something which was higher level where I just needed to tweak the the, the things which change and then keep the rest of, keep the routine the same. And I found that XML was quite good to, to express that. It was often better than Python or, or high level languages. So it sounds a bit like, like, like a take on templating in, in a sense. It's kind of like templating. It's, it's templating uh, code. Okay. But at some level, there's the tags which do if, you know, and for and, and else, etc. There's also much higher level tags, um, which, which do, do a lot more per tag. So go beyond the, the basics of, say, like a Jinja or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's actually XML's code. It's not really a, a template. It's um, chewing complete code. So in a sense, it's not really um, XML that is running because XML is just how you put it down. It, it's just a represents the thing. I guess the, the Moya language just happened to exist in XML, but it's independent of XML. If that makes if that makes sense, yeah, it could have a, a more programming language like representation. But I found uh, XML is quite quite powerful for this kind of thing. Yeah, it looks cool. I mean, and the your site is beautiful. Thanks. In fact, the the Moya site is really beautiful. <laughs> MoyaProject.com. Yeah. Yeah, I just sent, sent some love that way. Have <laughs> <laughs> people check it out because it, yeah. it looks really cool. Were you doing it for multiple reasons? Were there specific things that you needed to solve with it? No, not really. I was working quite heavily in web development and I used Django mostly. Okay. And there's lots to love. Um, about Django and um, the, the documentation, the, the community. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I found development very repetitive and I kind of wanted to make my life easier and create something which I didn't have to repeat myself quite so much. Okay. As far as sort of uh, code that was required in each step of the phase of building a Django site that you had to keep adding these required blocks of things? Yeah, there's there's quite a lot of um, boilerplate. I think um, my mission as a developer is to to remove boilerplate. I think almost at a character for character level, there's things which exist that's for the the computer, for the machine. Yeah, and things which exist for you to for a human being to express uh, what you want. <laughs> yeah, and you you want to get that you want to uh, get that balance where you much much less code for the machine 
uh, and more code for, for for the human being. Yeah, and I'm I'm not knocking existing systems because you know they're quite powerful. Django's powerful. It runs um, loads of websites around the world and uh, Flask and, and all the all, all these projects. But even so, um, I think uh, a lot of the code you write is is boilerplate. Maybe it's like one third of the code expresses human beings' intent, uh, and the rest is the necessary machinery for the machine to to understand it. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and that made me think about the the recent the Copilot thing. You know, the GitHub Copilot. Yeah, how <laughs> it's not a good thing that that it would need to help you with writing all that boilerplate code, but mm. it, it definitely is something that there's plenty of that code in existing repositories. Yeah. So it would definitely be familiar with it. <laughs> yeah. That, that is interesting, the, the way it turns naturally language into code. Yeah. And, and the code that it generates is, is, is much longer than natural language. Mm-hmm. If only we could just write software in natural language. <laughs> I think we're a lo- long way away from it. But um, yeah. yeah. Python's an, it, is a, definitely an expression of that. And then I think things get interesting with, you know, web kind of integrating with web technologies and so forth. And Hmm. were some of the desires that you had for for Moya, I'm sorry, I'm spending so much time on it talking about it, but I'm I'm very intrigued by it. No, it's totally fine. Yeah. You're a photographer. Were there some demands of, you know, hosting like galleries and your, your work and stuff like that? Was that something that this system was helpful for? Um, a few, actually, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of support for photography. There's, there's a few tags there which will pull out uh, information regarding the camera and the lens from a JPEG. Okay, so the metadata type of stuff? That's right, yeah. I forget what they call it, but it contains, you know, the uh, exposure and um, the F number for the lens. Uh, EXIF? E-X-I-F? EXIF, you're absolutely right, yeah. So it can pull that out. I can use that information to you know, render it somewhere. In the blog. Nice. And there was lots of support for downsizing images and processing images. Um, so I can create thumbnails when you upload um, an image. Yeah. With just um, you know, a couple of lines. And you can implement effects like blur. Uh, in my blog, I've used um, a few blurry images that, that load in first. So you can get an impression of what it looks like. And then a, a second or two later, the, the high-res image appears. Okay, kind of like the <laughs> this is really going back in time. Uh, the progressive, <laughs> yeah, was it JPEG or GIF or what was it doing that did the progression? <laughs> uh, I think both. Yeah, J- JPEG. This progressive JPEGs and this progressive GIFs. I think. Yeah, um, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, when you you take a very high resolution image um, and then blur it, even if it's um, you know four K in size, uh, save it as a JPEG, it compresses to something that's really really small. It might be 660K for an enormous image because it's blurred. So you can load that in first. In the background, load the sharp image, and then at some point, do a crossfade. They crossfade from the... That's nice. Yeah. Because like, what happens sometimes is it feels like the page is clunkily being assembled in front of you. Yeah. And, and the boxes sort of pop into place, and and then like the text is moving. You're like, wait, I was starting to read that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're going to get less of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I think, mostly solved. I think by just getting faster internet. But the progressive JPEGs and uh, progressive GIFs, if there's such a thing, they looked ugly when they were loading. Yeah. You know, even the 
the JPEGs, I think it loads every, you know, alternate lines and gets sharper and sharper. It looks it looks janky, it looks um computery. Yeah. Yeah. We we've come up with better ways of solving those, I think. But most sites that load heavy in images will, will do some sort of progressive loading where they do that crossfade thing, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm a photographer myself. I I I dabble quite a bit. I was I don't know if you call it professional photography, if you're working for an organization, I was shooting like, uh, marathons and oh, right. um, like side of the road kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like graduations and other things like that. And it really got me into you know, photography and messing around. But the last two years have been a real bummer as far as yeah. going anywhere and taking photos. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It really has. I would like to get out and do more photography because it was like, um, uh, the other passion of mine. Yeah. Do you do much other uh, Python stuff with photography? No, not really. Haven't had the okay. opportunity. I would like to. It's always good to combine two things that you like to do uh, into one. Yeah, I had um, Mike Driscoll on, and he was doing a book about Pillow or Pill, you know, the Pillow, P- yeah. Python image library. It's interesting the things that it can do. It's still, you know, missing, you know, a lot of. Uh, things like a higher level editor will have, but it, it, it does a lot of the stuff that you're talking about of like, you know, okay, I want to crop this or pull the XF data out or yeah, uh, those kinds of things. So yeah, pill is quite neat. I, I've used it for years. I don't know how far it goes back. I used it when it was, when it was pill. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So that must be more than 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> must be. <laughs> yeah, totally. This podcast is sponsored by DataStax Astra DB. AstroDB is built on Apache Cassandra and is now made easy in the cloud. Create a free Cassandra database in minutes for global scale on a startup budget with 40 gigabytes of storage free every month. Visit us at astra.dev slash python. That's A-S-T-R-A dot D-E-V slash python. When you saw, I guess we could kind of maybe you could tell the story of it, but there was this post where somebody had taken rich and they had kind of created um, something beyond just a, a standard command line interface. They actually built like a sort of a dashboard. Yeah. And um, I, I feel like it kind of maybe piqued your interest as far as like a, maybe a potential area of development. So I don't know if you want to tell the background on that. Um, that's right. Yeah. So I forget the, developers uh hamill uh sorry hamill forgot your surname and i think it was yeah i'll make sure i include links okay and uh jeremy howard i think that's right apologies again forgot the names but um they they took rich and they, they built um a dashboard which showed real-time information from the github api so it could show um i can't remember what it showed commits and statistics and various things in a dashboard format where it split the screen into four and there's a few options to change the layout and such. And they were using Rich for that, but Rich has no support <laughs> for, <laughs> for anything like that. So so they had to use it, you know, they had to hesitate to use the word hack because it sounds like right. um, doing stuff randomly, but they, they did some something clever to take Rich uh, and to produce more of a, an application, more, more of a TUI uh, text user interface. And I looked at it and, well, it looked great. And and then, see, I'd, I'd been resisting building anything like that for Rich. Rich was just write some nice output in a static format to, to 
to terminal so you can like um, make command line applications look nicer. It was never very d- dynamic. Um, there was progress bars, but that, that was about it as far as dynamic output goes. And I swore that that's all it would ever be, even though people ask me, well, can I build um, a bigger interface for this? And I would say, no, that's not, <laughs> not what Rich is for. Um, but when I saw, saw a GH top, I thought, well, I have to do it now because I could see the potential. For, for those, I mean, initially I was thinking, I'll, I'll build something for those type of HTOP-like applications that are more dashboardy. You know, they'll show you some information that's updating, maybe got a few keys to modify the, the view, etc. And I thought I'd limit it to that. But then I realized that, well, I could extend it a bit further and maybe build something which you can use to create any user interface for things which are more more sophisticated kind of editors and and dialogues and real time plots that kind of thing. So um, yeah, that's how it came about, and I embarked on building Textual. When did you sort of go heads down and and start working on that? Um, it wasn't immediately after I saw GH Top, but I started thinking about it after GH Top, and at some point, just got to get out what's in my head. So it was only it was only a few months ago. I had this intense period of, of writing code and it all came to the, the basic system came together quite quickly. I, I want to combine it with things that I've been learning about over the last few years, not specifically async IO and and web technologies. So it came together, the initial phase came together quite quickly in a matter of months. It must have been like three months of working on it. But there's quite a lot of technical debt there. There's quite a lot of code that I wrote that I didn't understand <laughs> myself. Inside of Rich to to update toward it? Oh, Rich is used uh, in Textual. Sorry, I should have uh, explained that. So Rich does all the rendering. Yeah. Mm. So, but that's where the technical debt was sort of, if you will, stored away. <laughs> well, Rich is very mature. Yeah. But they, they stopped to make it dynamic. That's where the technical debt was because I wrote it so fast. Had to get it down uh, on paper or or screen, as it were. And since then, I've been going back and, and cleaning it up and, and refining it. So I've got a more stable base going forward. When you mentioned that y- you needed to have Async IO be part of this project, is that partly because it is much more of a user interface? Yeah. So in a user interface, um, there's lots of independent tasks going on. Yeah, Async IO seemed to be the the right candidate for that. It's kind of a, a novel use, I think, for Async IO. Async IO is more for, well, IO. It's it's in the name, isn't it? It's it's more for yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Is like uh, you know the most common thing we are in appearing is like adding it to some web type library so that exactly yeah uh, things can kind of be going back and forth. But I think a, a user interface would be crucial. I mean. Uh, you know, in, input as part of that, right? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah, it does does take take input. So it's taking input in the form of um, uh, key presses and, and mouse movements, and and handling all that in, information and also um, updates and rendering. Uh, there's lots of little tasks going on, which is actually quite applicable to async IO, and it's not that crazy actually. Uh, think about it because uh, JavaScript. Is, has a sync yeah. uh, and a wait. Um, and that's used predominantly for user interfaces. So 
Yeah, client side or whatever they call it. Yeah. 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 So I've, I've, I've taken the same approach when I'm implanting a, a TUI. And because it, you know people have used that same approach in, in the front end, uh, clearly it's, it, it's applicable. So maybe we could describe, you know, again, being a podcast, this sort of concept of, of, of like a, let's say a generic TUI text user interface, like what, what would the components uh, be and what would, what would make it up? Do you mean from the sort of um, interface point of view or code? Yeah. Like, you know, like the different separate windows and. Well, it's, it's not too dissimilar from a web page. Okay. In the sense, um, you know, the, the, I'm looking at Zencast at the moment and that has um, a side panel with, with some content that's chat and it's got um, a header and, and some links and it's got um, assumably a, a window which scrolls. Mm-hmm. I think um, the same kind of thing can be done in, in the terminal to, to create an interface. You know, you divide the components of this screen up uh, into logical bits and put, put content in each of those and build your interface that way. I think the only difference between, say, um, a GUI or a web application um, is that a TUI should be um, primarily keyboard. Okay. Should be, yeah, keyboard input-driven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it does... Not mouse. Exactly. It, it does do mouse, and a lot of people appreciate the mouse. Sometimes mouse is good for exploring an interface. But the whole point of a, a TUI is that you can go from typing... Yeah. In the terminal, you can launch a, a a bigger UI, work on that UI with the keyboard, tap, 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 uh, enter text, do what you have to do, and then exit um, the, the TUI, and then you're back to the terminal again. And I think that kind of workflow um, can be much quicker than launching a, a browser and navigating a browser or even launching a, a desktop application. Yeah, I could. I I feel like there are a lot of applications that, are set up so that in order to interact with it beyond anything that's just a command line interface, which usually maybe has logging at most hmm. uh, in there, they, it's been a trend to kick it out to a, a small, you know, locally hosted web app or something like that. Yeah. Um, and this might be that nice kind of in between spot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what I'm thinking. I think um, you build some functionality and maybe you want a bit more of a user interface beyond um, just command line. And you could build a desktop application or, as you suggested, a web application. But often the barrier to entry for doing that is is large enough to just put you off. (laughs) Sure. So I think that quite often people would decide they want a UI, uh, but it never happens. So there's like this uh, niche, um, which I'm hoping that Textual will, will fit into. So you, you build your app with a, with a command line interface, and then you, t- you spend two or three days, hopefully, um, implementing a TUI. And I, I'm hoping that a lot of projects will start to use that. And I'm thinking it'd be great if you're working with a command line interface and you just uh, guess that you do hyphen hyphen TUI uh, to launch the, the TUI. Into it. If enough projects do that, I think it'll make life easier for a lot of developers and non-developers too. Yeah, I was thinking about the different kind of components that can make up a TUI. Like I'm looking at an example right now that you have, where you know it has a like a header 
Uh, it's like kind of a different color bar. Yeah. And then a you have it just listed as a placeholder, which is just a like a side column. In in those circumstances, you have like a you know like a using just text. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like a lot of special characters, you've created the outline around the box. Yeah. And then you know centered the the you know like some text on the on the side that would be maybe it could be like instructions or some kind of like you know the basic like commands that you would use yeah but then you have like a top right hand upper box that is a little more like the command line in the sense that it would actually show like you know potentially scrolling information that goes back to maybe the mouse interaction that you could actually scroll the data back and forth Mm. and then maybe at the bottom there's like a, a footer that has a certain amount of information and and any of those could be like uh, we were David and I were talking about a text charting library. <laughs> yep. That was kind of cool. And I'm like, oh, that could probably integrate into that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping to have lots of plotting built in. Okay. There are the libraries which do this, which just write um plots and graphs and things to the terminal and they're usually pretty good. They have, you know, they have an x-axis and a y-axis and they, they can draw a line through various means. You can do some clever things. You can use just block characters. You can also use um, dashes and lines. Uh, you can also use Braille characters, okay, which is a, a complete abuse of what they're intended for. But <laughs> yeah, a Braille character is two by three dots, I believe. Mm. So if you treat those dots as pixels, you can build up an image with it that's characters, but it still seems more like a higher resolution image. Yeah. Okay. So those libraries exist and they're quite good. But what I'd like to do is pull that into textual and allow you to scroll. So maybe you could click and drag on one of the axes to to move left and right or up and down or or mouse wheel to zoom, that kind of thing. A bit like some of the libraries like Bokeh or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, but in the terminal. Mm. So yeah, and I was thinking about that. Like not only can you scroll the, the windows, but it being, uh, you know, the whole thing is running... In, in a terminal window, typically, right? Yeah. And so that window itself is resizable. Was that difficult to have your code? I don't know what the, where the difficult bits are as far as like, okay, you resize a window and now the, the amount of uh, text space for each one of these windows is going to adjust. Yeah. Yeah, so there's um, a few layout systems Okay. that are quite similar to um, GUIs. I think GUIs have very similar concepts. And also... CSS. Okay. So you can divide the screen up um, into uh, vertical and horizontal lines and then place windows. Well, and in textual, I call them widgets, but basically a, a window that, that goes from uh, one vertical line to another and then one horizontal line to another. So so when the user resizes it, it, it repeats that process and it divides the screen up into proportions. So you can have... Um, fixed sidebar, say 32 characters, then the rest of the screen can be split into four um, equal proportions. And it would do that regardless of the screen size, whether you stretch it um, horizontally or vertically, it would still it would still um, have the same overall format. Yeah. So one of the, <laughs> I don't know if this is more of a proof of concept, you'd done like a calculator? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the calculator was to prove that um, CSS grid works in the terminal. Okay. So I'm a, a web guy, generally, and I want to take CSS concepts like CSS grid, which is dividing up the, the width and the height into vertical and horizontal columns and, and putting 
uh, windows between them. And I needed a good test for that. And I thought, well, calculator is a good test. I, t- I popped up the Mac OS uh, calculator uh, and observed how it's kind of a grid. Yeah. But I think the zero button spans two two squares and the at the top where the digits go, that spans uh, the full width. And I started writing um, using the CSS grid-like system that I created. Um, I plotted out the layout of that of that calculator, of the macOS calculator. I even uh, took the dropper tool and used the same colors. <laughs> it, it, nice. it doesn't look quite as good as, as macOS, but it works as, as a natural calculator. Yeah, that's nice. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. With all our recent talk about making small Python projects, I thought this would be a great course to share, especially if you're interested in making a small game that you can easily complete. It's titled Rock, Paper, Scissors with Python, a command line game. The course is based on a real Python article by Chris Wilkerson. And in the course, Christopher Trudeau shows you how to code your own rock, paper, scissors game, take in user input with the input function, play several games in a row using a while loop, clean up your code with enum objects and functions, and then define more complex rules with a dictionary, and then how to make an advanced version of the project that helps to avoid the common issue of repeated tie games. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to practice making a small game that runs in the command line. And this is a quick course to get you up and running, but also has multiple suggestions on how to enhance the game, where you'll practice iterating your code and refactoring. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get additional resources and code examples for the technique shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. What were some of the harder points for it? You mentioned async. I don't know if that was difficult to to integrate, Hmm. but what were some of the parts that that were challenging for you? The tricky bits is managing updates. Okay. So every component uh, is a widget. And every widget has a message pump, which has a queue of messages uh, which are being processed by an async I/O task. And uh, a message can be uh, an event like a, like a key press. Um, it can also be an event like um, the window resizing, etc. And in that system, when you resize the window, you've, you've got to ask all these components to, to repaint their particular part of the screen. Uh. And... Uh, that system is is quite tricky because they're all sending their their updates um, independently of each other, and the the higher level object, the, the app and textual, has to um, combine them to paint the entire screen. That that was a tricky bit, but that that's what most of the system is built on. It allows the the components to be entirely independent. Okay, they don't call methods on each other, which is a bit weird when you're building applications in general because you kind of expect to get an instance and call its methods but in textual you, you pass messages so you create a message object and you push it to the widgets okay message pump and it processes it independently but i'm glad to say that that's working now that was quite tricky there was a lot of hair pulling out but it kind of works now it feels a bit like uh, you have you know some background in in game 
yeah. development. You written a high game book a long time ago. Yeah, it sounds a bit like you know creating a a, a game loop of sorts, a sort of a loop mm. uh, that's always going to be running, checking for updates. Is is that similar in some ways? I mean, it sounds like the messaging system is, yeah. is very different in that way. Um, it's a lot like a game, and I think that's one of the reasons that this project has appealed to me um, because it uses okay. Uh, muscles that have atrophied since I used to work in video games. <laughs> um, I'm using some of the similar kind of concepts. I think the only major difference is Texel doesn't keep processing things in a tight loop like a video game because a video game has to present 30, 60, right. 20 frames a second. Always, always, always pushing the rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to do that with, uh, with a terminal mm-hmm. um, because it just wastes CPU. You want, when you're doing nothing, for it to use 0%. CPU. But interestingly, terminals these days, um, they're quite advanced. They use video game type technologies, mm. like hardware accelerated graphics, to to draw things to the screen. You know, some of them are using OpenGL and those kind of technologies. So they, they can actually push characters to the screen remarkably quickly. Yeah. So it's surprisingly close to video games. I mean, I was experimenting with um, how smooth can I animate something <laughs> I was wondering it, about that. Yeah, and it turns out 120 frames a second is fine. Okay. In in the terminal, which I, I find crazy. It, it feels like when people write these TUIs, they're writing TUIs which might have needed to go at that rate like 20 years ago. And and they haven't realized that the terminals have got so much faster. Yeah. I would um, you know, it's I don't know if it's neglected or or not, but maybe it's just like the developments happening behind the scenes and, you know, the the team that's probably behind the the terminal application is maybe small within like an OS vendor, but mm. are there other third party terminals? I, you mentioned to me before we started that you're on the Mac platform, mm. but are you having to test this out on like say you know different Windows terminals and things like that? So there's no Windows support yet. Okay, um, because it does it will need um a different kind of driver. Mm. There's different ways of getting the keyboard and such. Okay. Um, but it's designed so that I will be able to build it on later. So is it, it's Unix and Mac then currently? It is for now, yeah. Okay. Um, Windows uh, drivers will come along eventually, but for now it's uh, Linux and Mac. Okay. But to go back to your, to your question, I do have a small, well, actually quite a large array of terminals that run on Mac OS. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at I've got the Mac OS terminal, I've got iTerm, I've got Kitty, Hyper, uh, Alacrity, and uh, a few others. And of course, I want to test it, make sure it runs on them. In theory, in theory, it, it should, because most of them are Xterm compatible. Mm. But I have noticed subtle differences. It's just the nature of, I guess. I guess. But um, as long as I test it on quite a large variety of terminals, I'm wondering what what kind of bugs pop up in 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 those circumstances. It's usually see the um the spec for terminals. It, it's hard to express how old it is. <laughs> okay because it's multiple layers it's like um when, when i when we say the word terminal uh, what we're actually referring to is um a terminal emulator oh okay yeah which makes you wonder what the heck is it emulating then <laughs> uh, and it, it turns out it's um old machines from like the 70s where you've got like a, a tiny screen and a big keyboard but that's connected to a remote computer Right, it's sort of uh, the original sort of shared experience, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's how it's how your um, grandparents use computers, 
But the, it, it goes back even further than that, um, because those machines are electronic versions of teletype machines. Okay. Which were essentially, um, obviously it's way before my time, way before your time as well, it's a, a printer attached to a keyboard. So when, when you type, you don't see it on the screen, you see, you see it on, on, a, on a printer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the reason I launched into that was because the protocol that we have today is is been layered on since way back then, uh, way back from nineteen fifties. Every manufacturer has added uh, a little bit to the to the protocol, and the, the terminal emulators today have all these instructions. Oh, a subset actually, but they go back very far. So the problem is that I think there's different interpretations of the standard. Mm. So there's, there's some subtle differences, uh, and, and of course bugs. Um, the terminals are generally not that buggy because lots of people using them. Um, any real bugs would uh, hopefully rise to the surface. But I have noticed um, some subtle differences that I can, I can work around. Okay. Yeah, it's a little stuff creeping up here and there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was some of the stuff that you were like most excited to include into Textual? I think it was smooth scrolling. Spent a lot of time working on on scroll bars. Um, the scroll bars are rendered with uh, Unicode characters. This um, Unicode characters which represent blocks, and this, they go from uh, one eighth block to a quarter block to to a full block, and you can render a high resolution bar that uh, you can scroll up. So it looks almost pixel perfect. It's not quite, but it is it's quite smooth. Nice. Yeah, and I added um, lots of, there's quite a lot to a scroll bar, um, lots of pieces of functionality. You, know, you use them in the web or in the GUI um, so often that you just, you just forget about it. But there's lots of interactions like where well, you can click and drag, obviously. You can click above and below uh, the scroll bar. You can do page down, page up, lots of ways of interacting with a scroll bar. So I spent quite a lot of time putting those in. And the reason I did that was because I would like uh, a TUI to be usable by by the layman, right? You know, um, I'd like to be able to give a TUI to your, your Joe Blogs who's never opened a terminal, and have them completely at ease with using that interface. Yeah, especially if it's geared toward a dashboard type of thing. Yeah, the person may not be interacting with it a lot, but they should at least feel comfortable with like updating it or especially some of the things you mentioned of like potentially like zooming or, you know, scrolling and, and so forth that, yeah. I mean, the point of a dashboard in my opinion is, is more than just to look at it is to interact with it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, if the dashboard gets more, more sophisticated, um, I would like people to be at home. So if, um, if they're not a developer, they might use it thinking, well, this app has a certain kind of retro aesthetic, but it's exactly what I'm, I'm familiar with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Are there particular uses that you are looking forward to people doing with it? Um, sure, yeah. There's, um, there's a certain number of sweet spots with these type of applications, which I think people may build with it first. What I can think of is quite a lot of tasks I do. I do on servers to administer them. Um, that's not my main job. I'm, I'm a software developer, but most of them, involve um, hunting for a configuration file, mm. editing that configuration file, uh, and then running a process and, and seeing the results. So I can imagine an interface where on the left, you've got a tree view 
or a list view um, of all the various configuration files that you might need for whatever your project is doing. Um, you click on one of those, it opens that configuration file in an editor, and at some point there will be um, a fully featured editor textual syntax highlighted. So they go they go in there, they edit their their configuration file, and then they might hit hit a button which launches the process, and then I can show the results of that process in a panel which uh, appears at the bottom of the screen or something, and they can use that to administer their their web server or whatever application they're using. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That nice set of set of controls on one side that, you know, where you're able to sort of select and choose and not have to leave <laughs> the yeah. screen. Yeah. Not have to um, hunt around at the, the command line and remember the paths and then you know, launch your editor. It's not a killer app in the sense people already do this quite successfully, but I think um, if it just makes it easier, people will always use the easier option. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will be, We'll, we'll take that and build their own little two, hopefully just two or three days' work. I mean, if I provide a framework where you don't have to reinvent everything from scratch, you can just add your own configuration files and and define what happens when you click the go button, that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that people will will take that and use that. Yeah, cool. I'm always keen to talk about it. So if uh, any of your readers want to contact me, then quite happy to go over anything, really. Yeah, so I was thinking we maybe we could get into talking about you know some some changes in in your career lately. Yeah, yeah. So you made kind of an announcement uh, recently. That's right. So I'm I'm basically I've I've been a freelance developer for uh, a number of years. I've decided to take um, a year off. It it might be a year. Um, it might be slightly less, but I have a planned for a year. And in that time, I'd like to develop textual and also work on other open source projects. The reason I'm doing this is because I do think there might be commercial applications for, for textual in the future, but that doesn't take anything away from the fact that I'm sort of building an open source project for the benefit of uh, the, the community. Yeah. And I'd also like to try and be a friend to open source in general because I've been the beneficiary of uh, open source code all my career. So I'd kind of like to contribute some some work and time to to other open source projects, and see what what good I can do in, in that period of time. Do you have your eyes on any particular projects at the moment? There's a few at the top of my head. Would like I wouldn't mind contributing to uh, HTTPX. I'll have a look and see if they've, they've got any. I mean, I could uh, a few things I could add to to their their command line application using Rich, um, but it's not purely about about Rich. You know, it's anything really I'm, I'm looking for ideas actually so i'm hoping people will contact me and say is there anything you could you know could you do this for me and or, or help me or that kind of thing i was also thinking of doing code reviews for other open source projects because i do that in day job and if i build up a number of code reviews i can get better at that and maybe publish them on on github to take that as a little tangent what are things that you think make up a good code review like what what are things that that need to be like included in that um i guess not focusing on um the minutiae okay of the code not formatting i mean hopefully they're using black so it might not be an issue but not not the little details that they're important on some level but you don't need someone to do a code review to to find those i'm hoping i can i can focus on 
design issues, um, designing APIs. I have um, experience doing that. And if I can uh, nudge projects in, in a, a different direction that might not have thought about it before, hopefully that'll be quite beneficial. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like it's a mutual, mutually beneficial experience doing code review? Um, yeah, I think so. I think the more code reviews that I do, that the better um, I'll get, the better um, idea of other people's code that I'll have. I have, so it's kind of mutually beneficial. And also the reason I want to get better at it is because um, I would also like to do it at some point basically on a, on a paid level, you know, for non-open source projects. Okay. Um, maybe commercial projects, they could come to me and ask me to review the code and, and offer any suggestions for improvements to to APIs and interfaces and that kind of thing. So a bit of a, like consults, consulting on that level. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, cool. Before this break, were you working as a f- freelance? That was what was on your blog before. I was just trying to make sure that that's still yeah. the title that you had at the time, freelance developer. Yeah, that's right. I was a, a freelance developer. I was working for the, the same client, actually, for, for 10 plus years. Okay. And we've done some cool things uh, together. Um, but I think this is just about the right time in my life to uh, to give something of my own a try. Yeah. So you have a setup. Uh, sort of GitHub sponsors, is that the right name? Uh, GitHub sponsors, that's okay. right, yeah. So um, since I won't have an income uh, for uh, quite a while, possibly up to a year, I was looking to get sponsors through GitHub sponsors. Um, if, I, if I help you with open source in, in any way, you know, if I, if I contribute, um, maybe you could return the favor uh, with a small donation. Not required, um, but it would certainly be very much appreciated because it would really help pay the bills. Yeah, and you have different kind of levels of, of engagement that that people can look at there too to kind of get an idea of the types of things that you'd be interested in helping with. Yeah, so GitHub sponsors has um, a few tiers. You know, you choose a, a larger sponsorship and you can get some some perks back. But in, in general, if you're an open source project, um, I would like to to help you yeah cool you know sponsorship isn't required on <laughs> any level uh, i don't want people to think that um if it's benefits community then i would love to contribute so currently textual is a version 0.1.11 mm. and um i'm always intrigued by the zero version thing i had um the creator flask on and we talked about it for a little bit mm. is there a particular reason that you'd like to keep it at zero ver for a bit? Yeah, so um, there's still lots to do. I enumerated all the tasks I need to do. I put it in uh, GitHub the projects. They've got a Kanban board. Okay. Um, and added things to my do, to-do column, and there's, there's so much left to do. Keeping it at uh, version zero means that the interface is provisional in, in that I can, I can change it at a later date. Um, I don't want to do that because I might break people's code, um, but I'm saying... Sorry, I might have to do it. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> if something comes along. Yeah. Uh, okay. When it reaches one one point zero, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's complete. In fact, it probably isn't. But when I get to one point zero, I'm saying this interface uh, is is stable. Okay. And you you can rely on on backwards compatibility. But for the moment, I might break your code uh, on the next version. So if you do use Textual, um, please pin your version numbers to to the specific version down to the um the third digit yeah okay that makes sense yeah it's good advice 
So I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, what's something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? Could be like an event or a book or mm. package or what have you. Um, it's actually, there's um, a move on to, to make Python faster. Yeah. Um, I know when this comes up, standard answer from Python developers is, well, it doesn't need to be faster. Most of the projects are I.O. bound. And there are ways of, of you know, you can run multiprocessing mm-hmm. and things to, to make it go faster. But let's face it, we would all want Python to run faster. And I think there's a lot of interest in this. So there's a working group, I think it's headed by uh, Guido, Guido Van Rossum, uh, and they're looking into ways of making Python just, just faster. And that will benefit everyone, a wide variety of, of projects. Yeah. It's obviously a very tricky deal, Python go faster. I mean, I've been watching lots of projects um, that have exactly that goal. Some of them can come and go. They, they attempt it and they don't get as fast as they intend them to. Uh, and some are, have pros and cons. It might go faster, but might use up more memory or, or, or be more or be less stable. So, you know, like, like PyPy, uh, PyPy is terrific. When I tried it, this was a few years ago, so apologies if things are better. I used up too much memory. Hopefully it's better now, but if we can get the regular Python interpreter, interpreter just, just faster, you know, 10%, 20%, I think they're aiming for three times faster or something. Yeah. I think that would be very exciting. Yeah, the, it, we did a uh, episode where I talked to Joanna Jamonski, and she was able to basically be the reporter at the Language Summit. Mm-hmm. And so there were lots of interesting talks in that direction. and. Even the version that's coming out in a few weeks here is is you know in the numbers that you mentioned you know it's, it's like I think at least twenty twenty five percent faster depending on what you're trying to do yeah if not more and so yeah it'll be interesting times <laughs> so. yeah and I wonder if it might change um, the type of things which are done with Python because when you're choosing a language it's a big factor for some things. You know, the other more static or compiled languages, they, they are faster, and you might not look at Python because you think it's slow. But what if Python got faster? So maybe that speed doesn't make much of a difference. It might open up whole new new avenues for, for Python developers. Yeah, and there's so many avenues as it is to, to see mm-hmm. it even open up more would be great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. What's something that you want to learn next? Oh, that's a good one, because I do have um, a year off. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I don't want to be entirely about code. You know, I probably won't get this opportunity again in my life. Um, so I should do something interesting with it. And the thing I want to do is is writing. Okay. I've always had this idea that um, I would like to, to write a novel. I know a lot of people do. Um, they don't get the time to do it. And I figured uh, when I'm not writing Python, I can try um, writing a novel. I do a bit of writing. I'm not very good. Um, I think it might be something that uh, takes a while to learn. Yeah, so, I think it's it's very an iterative process. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't born being able to write Python. It took quite a while to learn. So I think it's probably the same for uh, writing prose. But that's definitely something that I'd like to learn. Yeah. Are there resources you're using to to hone those tools? Just uh, reading. Okay. Basically, um, I think reading is a good way to to learn writing. Uh, when I read now, I kind of um. I'm more, more analytical. Yeah. I'm like, um, well, how did they express that idea? Um, <laughs> yeah. How did they launch into the 
dialogue? How do they connect the scenes? That kind of thing. Yeah, I can imagine you doing that with photography, being that some of your background that you could look at another photographer's work and have those same yeah. kind of questions pop up. Yeah, like how, how did they how did they do it? How did they make something look so good? Or right. how did uh, that writer do so well? And and try to figure out plotting. I think plotting is for me is probably the hardest thing. Um, I can construct a sentence which I think is quite readable, or even an entire paragraph. But how you come up with um, an intricate story um, from start to finish, that's um, it's beyond me at the moment, but that is something I need to uh, research and figure out. Yeah, I, I listen to lots of audiobooks. I think maybe that's my own little problem of like trying to read prose has always been very slow for me. But I mm. really enjoyed um, Stephen King's on writing book. I don't know if you checked out. Yeah, I read that a while ago. Yeah, I must reread it because um, it always gets recommended when yeah people talk about writing. Yeah, it's very interesting, and you know, and he's so prolific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, you could learn a thing or two from Stephen King. Definitely. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we kind of end up each episode with shout outs or plugs and anything that you want to promote. I guess my GitHub sponsorships. Okay, but if you look at my projects, um, textual and rich. Um, I'm sure there'll be links in the, the show notes. Yep. So yeah, I'd, I'd love people to to check those out, comment them, give me suggestions because for for textual, it's really important that um, I satisfy everyone's use case. So please check that out, run the examples, and uh, comment on the discussions board. That'd be fantastic. And then, uh, are there particular social connections you want to share? Um, there's my Twitter. I'm quite a prolific Twitter the Twitterer. Yeah. These days, so feel free to to follow me. And uh, we, I quite, I like um, interacting with uh, Python developers. So, yeah, have a look at my Twitter. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Thank you. It's been, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. And don't forget, this episode was sponsored by DataStax AstraDB, built on Apache Cassandra, made easy in the cloud. Learn more at astra.dev/python. I want to thank Will McGugan for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, I look forward to talking to you soon.